You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hi everybody. Welcome today. Hi mom if you're watching. Uh, May, uh, if you don't know, is Asian American Pacific Islander Month in the U.S. As we get going, just want to take a minute to honor all the many incredible contributions of AAPI people in American history, in church history, in Mosaic's church history, and in my life. You all are amazing, and for you, we give thanks today. Yeah. All right, maybe you have seen this. It's been in the news recently. been quite a bit of reporting on something called a loneliness epidemic. Loneliness epidemic. Matter of fact, last week, the U.S. Surgeon General announced a government plan to address it, pointing out that the rate of loneliness in American adults had increased consecutively every year from 1976 to 2019. And of course, that was bad. And then it got worse because after 2019 came what? 2020, yeah, the COVID-19 pandemic hit, lockdowns hit, and many Americans have spiraled down since. LA Times reported this from Brigham Young University's research. They said, quote, being socially disconnected can have both mental and physical consequences. It puts people at greater risk for anxiety and depression and also increases the possibility of dementia by 50%, stroke by 32%, and heart disease by 29%. The risk of premature death from heightened isolation is comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, maybe even greater than that associated with obesity and physical inactivity. Yeah, as one person sort of put it, this just goes to show that it's better to eat Twinkies with your friends (laughs) than it is to eat your vegetables all alone, right? All God's teenagers today said, amen. Yeah, this same research shows that people today are spending less and less time with friends and family, less and less time face-to-face with people in their faith communities. They're spending more and more time alone with technology. And as we do this, now we come to trust one another less. It makes our communities less safe, making us in turn more lonely, like the cycle just goes on. And our Surgeon General, Dr. Murdy, said we must face this issue head on, and he put it like this, quote, if we fail to do so, we will pay an ever-increasing price in the form of our individual and collective health and well-being. He said, and we will continue to splinter and divide until we can no longer stand as a community or a country. So our nation's top doctor says that our loneliness is killing us and that it's fragmenting our culture and all of that is true and all of that is bad, but as bad as it is, don't you think some people just deserve to be alone? Hmm? I mean, like, haven't some people justly earned their outcast status? I can think of plenty of husbands and wives have ruined their families, respectively. Moms and dads you have, don't they deserve the loneliness coming to them? Hmm? About bad bosses? How about that bad neighbor? How about abusers? Criminals? Shooters? Aren't we glad some people at least get canceled and left alone? The last week of his life, Jesus of Nazareth, 
Luke chapter 19. It says this, verse one, he entered Jericho and was passing through. He's got but a few days to live. So he's headed for Jerusalem. And verse two says, a man was there in Jericho by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And while even today, some of you may know this, man, it, it, it's hard enough if you work for the IRS, hard enough to, if you work for the IRS, to acknowledge at parties you work for the IRS. Like it's not what you lead with at class reunions or on a first date. Like, really? Me too, you know. These Jewish tax collectors were worse. They were the equivalent of Nazi collaborators. They were those who worked with the occupiers and the colonizers to impoverish you and your family and your children. And they not only took your money for Rome, but they also took extra money for themselves on top of the taxes. They got away with it. They were backed by the Roman army. So yeah, tax collectors were bad, but that's not who Zacchaeus was. He wasn't a tax collector. He was actually something else. We are told he was the architelonus. He was the chief tax collector. He was the one in charge of all the IRS Jericho agents. He organized them, recruited them, kept them in power, and he took money from them, making them take money from you. And because of that, in contrast to your family, which would have lived hand to mouth nearly every day in Jericho, he, it says, was wealthy. He was like the local mob boss who sort of, you know, protected you from Rome in exchange for your poverty. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. Don't some people deserve to be alone? Hmm. Though Zacchaeus was the elite 1%, still it said verse three, but he still wanted to see who Jesus was. Here's my question. Why would a, like a local mob boss, someone who's wealthy on top and power with the political strings, why would he want to see who a poor Jewish rabbi was? Well, maybe, just maybe, Zacchaeus was lonely. Maybe because of his actions, he was left all alone in life. And maybe he was experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. And, and maybe he had heard of someone who loved tax collectors, chief tax collectors like him. Someone who even had tax collectors as his own disciples. Maybe this chief tax collector had gotten sick of being alone. Well, how can you say that, Morgan? Look at verse three. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Oh, there's, there's so much going on here. One commentator brings out what's happening like this. They said, quote, it is not simply that Zacchaeus cannot see over the crowd. Rather, the crowd itself is present as an obstacle to him. On account of their negative assessment of Zacchaeus, the people refused him the privilege of seeing Jesus as he passed by. So, in other words, when it came to what prevented him from seeing Jesus, it wasn't his height in the end. It was the hate. It was the hate. The crowd has literally given him their collective cold shoulder. Zacchaeus, we see, has become lost from the community. He's separated. He's shunned by the public for his real crimes against the public. And, and why shouldn't it be this way? I mean, again, don't some people just deserve to be alone? So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. 
And if right here at this point, if a wealthy man running hmm, in Luke's gospel sounds familiar to you, it should. Because just like the wealthy father in Jesus' parable about the two sons ran to get back what had been lost from him, this wealthy tax collector, chief tax collector, is running after what he has lost. Community, connection, love, relationship. This is something unexpected to see. Certainly undignified to do. And then to top it all off, he climbs a tree like a little kid. Why? Because he's doing whatever it takes to see Jesus for himself. Let me ask you for some of you today, have you done this? Like, have you, no matter your background, no matter why you've come today, even if your mom pinched you, twisted your arm and forced you to come to church with you, like, have you risked the scorn of perhaps what other people think just to see Jesus for yourself? Have you run, made yourself visible, come out from the crowd, maybe climbed a tree? Let me tell you, don't let other people block your view of Jesus. See him for yourself. If you do that, yeah, you'll be noticed by your friends. It might get awkward with your family. Yeah, your co-worker will see you, but that's not the only person you'll be noticed by. So don't let the crowd on the internet, hmm? don't let the crowd in your class, the crowd on your campus, or the crowd at, even at church tell you who Jesus is. Go see him for yourself. And if you'll do that, you'll put yourself in position to hear what Zacchaeus heard for himself that day. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So what does Zacchaeus do? He says he came down at once and, and welcomed him gladly. Now, to invite someone into your home, this would have been like a, like a thundering statement. It would have meant you accepted the person, you were in solidarity with them, you approved of their standing in the community. It would have shown you were connected to them, you were sharing your life with them, you approved of them. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house, the center of your life. And so to the place where no one else wanted to go, Zacchaeus's house, Jesus went. The thing no one else wanted to do, approve the chief tax collector, Jesus did. And he uses the word meno. It means I must stay. I must abide. I must remain with you. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to be a part of your life from now on. I'm bringing my love, my approval, my standing in the community. I'm making it yours permanently. Who I am is now who you're going to be. How God sees me, Zacchaeus, is how now, how God sees you. And this right here is the difference between religion and the gospel between religion and the gospel. Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, hey, if you'll clean up your life, you'll try to do way better, I'll think about stopping by on the way home from work tonight. No, he says, before you ever change, before you ever do anything, before you ever even stop stealing from the people, I love you. I love you. I want to come stay with you, you chief tax collector. And the crowd there that day, as we read, loved every minute of it, applauded it. They wept tears of joy at the grace of Jesus Christ. Actually, that's a lie. That's not true at all. They weren't happy at all. They were, in fact, deeply offended. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, 
He is going to be the guest of a sinner. See, Luke tells us not just one or two, but all the people there that day hated what Jesus did. Let's pause at this point in the narrative and ask this question. What does, after all, what does it look like to be lost from others? Because that's what we're looking at in part in this series. We're looking at lostness, how people are, number one, lost from God. Number two, lost from themselves. Today we're seeing a third kind of lostness. We'll see a fourth kind next week. But today we're looking at how people are also lost from one another. And Zacchaeus shows us what part of lostness from others looks like. Sometimes it looks like this. It looks like using power to exploit Doing business without considering its effects on the community. Collaborating with those who impoverish others. Directly causing generational suffering in a city. But that's not the only kind of lostness from others, is there? No, no, because there's another kind. We see here Zacchaeus wasn't just lost from the crowd. We also see the crowd was lost from Zacchaeus. Because we'll notice here something about the crowd. This crowd isn't the anti-Jesus crowd, right? It's not like Atheist Anonymous out for a Sunday brunch. This isn't the Church of Satan hmm, strolling through Jericho. This isn't like the sage-burning, cleanser-aura, spiritist club folk. These are Jesus' fans. This is three years into his ministry. They know he's someone who heals the sick, stands against injustice. They are, they're his fans. They've come out to see him on a Sunday, to hear him, see him, experience him, maybe even worship him. But still, Jesus' own people are lost from a fellow Jew who's so sick with self-loathing, all he wants to do is see Jesus. But none of them even care to notice what else does it mean to be lost from others? Well, perhaps it means this, like the crowd to hold a grudge against someone who has hurt you, to refuse to act with compassion for someone who's lost, to insist others get it right before you relate to them. See, here we have two sides, both lost from the other. So what could, what could heal them? What could heal Zacchaeus? What could heal the crowd? What could bring them all together that day? Well, on one hand, what's fascinating to notice is what didn't heal them. Because what didn't heal them is this. It's interesting, right? How an entire town, with all the ridicule and hatred, they couldn't keep one tiny man from oppressing them. <laughs> For years, they had heaped derision on him. They would never go to his house. They wouldn't invite him to theirs. But that never changed him or moved him. But in the end, it was the affection and the presence of Jesus Christ, not the brutality or moral force of an entire town that healed its worst sinner. All the force of reason, all the judgment just made him stand his ground, but against the overwhelming force of acceptance and affection of Jesus Christ, Zacchaeus' heart was undone. I wanna tell you here, this is why things like far-right values groups or far-left morals groups or whatever in general ultimately fail to win the hearts of people. They may collect a group of like-minded, powerful individuals who can give a collective cold shoulder to someone in the community, but they don't change people on the heart level. 
Think about it. Were, they, were the Jewish people right? Yes. Was this man a traitor? Absolutely. Had he betrayed the very values and laws of their society and their faith? Yes. But his heart was never won or pried loose from the love of money and power until he encountered the difference between religion and the gospel, which is this, that we change because God loves us, not we change and then God loves us. Oh yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. If you've seen the movie Philomena, you may know it's based on the story of Philomena Lee. She's played there. She is by Judy Dench uh, in this in story, real life story, a true, true story. She's an Irish woman who had sex before marriage at the age of 15, got pregnant and forced to go live at an abbey with the nuns who also lived there. And she gave birth. It took her son away from her at age four. She's made it to sign a contract, never to see him again. She loses contact with him. He grows up, she grows old. As an older woman, many years later, a former BBC investigative reporter named Martin Sixsmith picks up the trail of the story and begins to investigate and eventually discovers that the nuns and the headmistress at the Abbey have done unspeakable things, including illegally selling the children of other, these women to Americans looking to adopt, then burning the record, the illegal sale. Even worse than that, they refused to give medical attention to many of the mothers who were struggling in childbirth, and many of the women and their babies died. They just buried him right there in the abbey. Philomena never sees her son again. He dies before she can find him, but she never grows angry or bitter at the nuns and seeks to forgive them at every turn. Now, the reporter, Martin, he can't grasp this. He gets so mad at Philomena uh, because she tells him, Christ told me I can't hold a grudge. And at one point, he angrily walks in and confronts the brutal headmistress named Sister Hildegard about her letting these teenage moms and their babies die. And the conversation in the movie went like this. Sister Hildegard says, let me tell you something. I have kept my vow of chastity my whole life. Those girls have nobody to blame but themselves and their own carnal incompetence. That's a well-written line right there. Martin Sixman says, you mean they had sex? Sister Hildegard says, what's done is done. What do you expect us to do about it now? Philomena interjects and says, nothing. There's nothing to be done or said. I found my son. That's what I came here for. The reporter says, hang on, hang on. I'll tell you what you can do. Say sorry. How about that? Apologize. Stop trying to cover things up. Get out there and clear all the weeds and crap off the graves of the mothers and the babies that died in childbirth. Sister Hildegard says, their suffering was atonement for their sin. Martin Sixman says, one of the mothers was 14 years old. Philomena interjects again, Martin, that's enough. Sister Hildegard says, the Lord Jesus Christ will be my judge, not the likes of you. And Martin Smith says, really? Because I think if Jesus was here now, he'd tip you out of that wheelchair and you wouldn't get up and walk. Martin Smith, Six Smith rightly picks up, yes, on the dangers of religion, the dangers of the Jericho crowd. Because religion says some people, some people like pregnant teenage moms or chief tax collectors just deserve to live, suffer, and die alone. But Philomena in the movie represents neither the traditional religious person like the head nun, nor the modern secular reporter who says, you've never done anything wrong because Philomena knows she has sinned as well, that she's a kind of Zacchaeus, but that Jesus still loves her and she avoids the trap, therefore, 
of becoming part of the Jericho crowd. Now, now don't you love that? Yeah, that's a great storyline. And don't you love this storyline in Luke 19? Like, it's amazing, isn't it? I think it is incredible. The love of Jesus heals a town's most notorious sinner. Don't you love it? Like, I don't know, Morgan, should I? I can't tell based on your tone, you know. The truth is, it's easy to love this story if you're a Zacchaeus, if you're a victimizer, if you're an exploiter, if you're an oppressor. But what if you're not? You might not like this story. The crowd there that day didn't. They all hated it. But again, why shouldn't they hate it, huh? Why shouldn't they have rightly muttered against what Jesus did? Because is this story saying, I mean, Jesus, like your gospel demands, we forgive those who oppress us, abuse us, betray us, divorce us, shoot us, rob us, harm us, exploit us generationally. Listen, I hope that maybe some of these questions are coming up inside you. And if you got these and a whole bunch more, hang on to them. It's good. Keep them. Because this story's not done yet. Verse eight, but Zacchaeus stood up. Didn't take him long. That's a joke. He's short. Okay, all right, all right. (laughs) Said to the Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. See, in other words, when Zacchaeus realizes he's been found, by Jesus, when he realizes that though he may have in his own mind been looking for Jesus, it was really Jesus who came looking for him in Jericho. When he experiences, when he encounters the gospel of Christ, he doesn't just say, Zacchaeus doesn't say, hey, y'all, you're supposed to forgive me now because the man upstairs did. Is that what he says? What does Zacchaeus do? When he's been found by Jesus, he makes personal restitution for what he's done. He gives back twice the amount required by Old Testament law. He goes above and beyond what he had to do. He gives in general, we see to the poor, and personally to those he is wronged, and he longs so much to live in light of what Jesus has done for him. He does whatever it takes to be reconnected and found with his community because restitution demonstrates the foundness of the gospel. See, when he, when he does that, look at what Jesus says now on the back end of Zacchaeus' speech. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, now, today, salvation's come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. See, Jesus is showing us that salvation looks like victimizers repenting to victims. Salvation looks like exploiters stopping their exploitation. Salvation looks like restitution being made to the ones you have harmed and oppressed. Why? Because Jesus hasn't just come to bring individual personal salvation as much as he has. That's where it begins. We can never lose. One of my seminary professors said, we can never lose the forminess of the gospel. But salvation, Jesus shows us here, doesn't end there. The full salvation Jesus wants to bring is both private and public. He desires to rescue, save both personal individual lostness and public social lostness. And because of that, here in all places, with a week to go in his life in Jericho, he unleashes his mission statement on the world. Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek 
and save the lost. New American translation, I like better rather. It puts it like this. The son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. Not only individual lost souls, but public lost cities. Groups of people even lost from one another. And here, (coughs) one of the two sides lost from each other does their part, his part, but the other side does not. Because you'll notice here how the story ends. It's not really a happy ending. It ends just like the parable of the two sons. You remember this, right? In that parable of Jesus, the son that was out, the younger immoral son, ends up being in with dad. And the older son, the righteous son, the I've never done anything wrong, part of the Jericho crowd kind of kid, started in and ends outside the grace of God angry and muttering on the porch. And here it's the same thing again. Zacchaeus, uh, the notorious T-A-X, sorry, who was out, ends up in. And the God-fearing, Sabbath-keeping, ceremonial law-washing Jews end up outside of his heart. Jesus literally leaves them and goes to eat with their enemy. Story over. My God, what does this passage demand of us. Well, first, what do we do if we found ourselves to be a Zacchaeus, like a victimizer? I'll say this. Individuals, husbands, mothers, fathers, wives, husbands, sons, daughters, cities, nations should repent and make restitution. That's what Jesus says his salvation looks like. So Zacchaeus did that. He did his part to be found with the crowd that day. But they didn't do their part to be found with him. What was their part? Oh, their part is the part that sometimes, maybe most of the time, is harder to forgive. You say it was easy for Jesus to do. He's God. No, he grew up under the same Roman exploitation, the same Roman taxation. It wasn't Zacchaeus, but it was somebody else just like him. And Jesus forgave Zacchaeus, he just like restitution increases foundness with one another, forgiveness increases foundness with one another. So let me say this, in light of what Jesus has done for you, you should make restitution to those you've harmed out of a desire to follow Jesus and heal the world. And in light of what Jesus has done for you, you should offer forgiveness to those who have harmed you out of a desire to follow Jesus and heal the world. You're like, what is it? What is Christian forgiveness? Well, let me define it. Here's what it's not. It is not. On one hand, as one writer put it, forgiveness is, they said, forgiveness is the sickness of patriarchal, misogynistic, male supremacist religions that blame victims. Is that what this is? No, 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 no. Far from it. Nor is Christian forgiveness the tool of the abuser who demands forgiveness of the one they hurt. Because look here, you'll notice Zacchaeus never demands the crowd forgive him. He simply offers an apology backed with financial meaning. Nor is Christian forgiveness not having boundaries. Christian forgiveness is not, not insisting sin stop. Jesus doesn't say, well, fine then Zacchaeus, now that you're following me, now that you're hashtag forgiven, you can keep living however you want. No, what is this? The thing the crowd couldn't do. Well, well, I can't give you everything. I can give you one idea in practice. In a way, forgiveness is a prayer 
It's a prayer. It's looking at heaven and praying this, Father, would you forgive them? They don't know what they do. Forgiveness is the prayer you pray when you're climbing up the Jericho tree of your own bitterness, when you're hanging out on the branches of your own lostness, and then you realize not only are you kind of a Zacchaeus in a way yourself, but you realize you can come down out of your branches of bitterness and lostness because Jesus Christ went up into another tree for you on another tree the cross of Calvary, to receive what you deserve for your sins. That's the prayer of forgiveness. When Carrie and I, when we were first married, uh, we worked for a Christian leader, pastor, who was ultimately fired for abuse of staff, in which I was top of the list, yes. For years, he belittled me and lots of other people. I was not the only one, for sure. Called me names, like humiliated me in front of my wife, spoke ill of me to the other staff. The list went on and on and on and on. I got so angry about this, so hurt, that one day I started dreaming about, fantasizing about hurting him. But then I remembered he had a black belt in karate. (laughs) I thought, it's probably not going to go very well for me. So I gave up on that. All I could do was pray for him and forgive him. That's what Carrie and I did night after night. We held hands, prayed for God to hold him lead him, bless him, bless his family, bless his ministry, change his heart perhaps. And while he didn't ever change, nor did he escape the consequences of his sin, we did escape becoming part of the muttering crowd on the outside of the grace of God. I remember thinking, how can I not forgive him? Lord, after what you've forgiven me of, I may not have done that, but I have done that and that and that. Now, I've shared that story before that you just heard right there. And afterward, I've had all kinds of reactions. Some people have come up to me afterward and said, you shouldn't have shared that at all. Other people have said, you shouldn't have had to forgive him. You did nothing wrong. Other people said, Morgan, you don't sound like you're okay with all that. You should probably go to therapy. That's true. Now, all I'm saying is, if saying one of those things was your plan to me after the service today, (laughs) somebody already beat you to it. I'm good. All right. Why do we forgive? We don't forgive to feel superior over our enemy. We do forgive so we don't become just like our enemy. We don't forgive so we can make sure we don't get poisoned by resentment. No, we forgive to make sure we don't become poison to others. But most of all, we forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. He found us through his forgiveness and we can help find others when we do the same. So, again, who deserves to live alone? Do you? Do I? Let me tell you, just like I don't want to live in a world without restitution and justice, I don't want to live in a world without mercy and forgiveness and hope. Do you? take a moment and pray for us as we begin to close. Lord, we come in Jesus' name, and I'm asking you'd help us wrestle with all the intricacies and demands of this passage and text and come face to face with your scandalous, sometimes even offensive grace and love, which you poured out on us, your people. Though we were once far away, you brought us near by the sacrifice, by the death, and the blood of Christ. 
Lord, I'm praying today we would all not only be found by you, but found with one another. Give us the grace and courage to live and walk this and be a church who offers this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen, Pastor Corey. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.